welcome to the P4C podcast. We are excited to reshare with you the last 13 years of teaching through God's Word at Passion for Christ Summit. Each week, the P4C podcast delivers rich truths for your life, and we know you will be blessed. Our current series is from P4C 2021, Scripture, the Ultimate Authority. We now join Phil Bracey for today's message. We hope you are encouraged and challenged. I'm going to take a look at Revelation today. Not the book of Revelation, don't panic, don't panic, um, but rather Revelation general and special to give you a couple of categories. There's a handout going around and uh, you'll see some extended quotes in there from our, our wonderful church father, John Calvin, and uh, I felt it'd be easier for you to follow along than for me to just read through it and, and maybe even trying to put it up on the screen there. So how in the world has God communicated to us? And there's really two ways in which that has occurred. There was a scientist, he went trudging up the hill one day, made it to the top of the hill, got up on the peak, he says, God, are you there? God, are you there? I need to talk to you. This voice comes out, yep, here I am. He says, I challenge you to a man-making contest. God says, okay, game on. Scientist stoops down, gets a couple of handfuls of dirt, God says, no, 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 no. You go get your own dirt. (laughs) We know fundamentally God owns it all, even down to the dirt. But how do we know God? Christianity is the one unique religion that rests on the foundation of revelation. In the Greek, that word revelation means to unveil, to uncover, to make known. What is hidden becomes revealed, and all revelation is an act of God. Whatever we know or could know about God is because he has chosen to reveal those things to us. This side of heaven, humankind is the only being that can have any knowledge of God. And it's because he's revealed it to us. Within the supernatural realm, of course, they have a knowledge of God. Even the demons tremble. Animals, no concept whatsoever of a a, uh, creator. They have no understanding of how the defined order of things function and work. Only mankind is a recipient of that understanding, and it's been given to us by God. Theologians have defined this in two categories— general revelation and special revelation. Let's take a look at the biblical text, Romans chapter 1. This is our basis for general revelation. Here in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, it tells us as Paul has written to the church at Rome, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived 
ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That is your biblical basis for general revelation, as a theologian might call it. Let me make a distinction here, because when we're dealing both with general and special, we're dealing with both content and scope. How broad and how wide has this been made known? General, very wide. It's public. It's to all people everywhere. It's global in nature. General revelation gives to all people knowledge of a creator God as Paul has articulated here in Romans 1. Evidence, if you will, time, order, structure. For any of you that have been out on a mountaintop and you look over things, astronauts that have been outer space, I don't know how many astronauts from outer space looking back towards Earth came to the realization this is a very well-designed and ordered system. Surprisingly, the majority of astronauts are believers. I have a friend who is a, literally a rocket scientist and has, uh, yeah, uh, has worked with most of the astronauts, and he was telling me how most of them are believers. Those that were not, that went up into outer space, oftentimes came back really questioning things. So that's the glory of God in the order of creation. Special revelation gives knowledge of God as a redeemer. Think of these two categories as very broad general revelation, very narrow special revelation. When I'll engage, and it's very common, and some of you have probably run into this today, it's very common, I'll engage somebody in a conversation, start to swerve into a little more evangelistic approach to it, and here's a common response I get. Yeah, well, I'm a really spiritual person. Right? Yep, some of you are nodding, you've gotten that. You see, what they've accepted is the idea of general revelation. Oh, there's another spiritual dimension. There's some sort of a God there. What they've created is a mush God. A mush God is a God of your own making, and that's what they've created. I'm a spiritual person. I don't want to go so far as you do with your Jesus thing, but yet I'm spiritual. So they've got their own little mush God. And it's so often the need when you start to take that person and move from the very general to the very specific, namely sin and the need for a redeemer, now comes rejection and excuses and backpedaling. I'm spiritual, but I don't want to go where you're taking me. So general revelation is about the revealed knowledge of God 
that he is embedded into his creation that testifies of a creator and a created order and is available, this revelation, to all people everywhere. In your handout, Calvin and his institutes, and I want to take you into some of the literature here by using Calvin. His institutes, you can buy it. It's a two-volume set. I highly recommend that it would be on every believer's shelf. If you were in one of my classes at church, I would require it, (laughs) not highly recommend it. But Calvin is in his institutes there, references a couple of psalms, and uh, the actual quotes we'll get to in a moment, but the two psalms he references is Psalm 19, verses 1 to 6. The classic psalm, the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above proclaims his handiwork, day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge, there is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. And then over in Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name above all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Interesting as the psalmist records that, and of course, Romans 1 that we just looked at, Calvin cites as well. There in your handout, follow with me because he writes a summary of these psalms and Romans 1 in his own language, but he's after he's evaluated these, here's what he says about it. He says, There exists, that there exists in the human minds and indeed by natural instinct some sense of God, some sense of deity, we hold to be beyond dispute since God himself to prevent any man from pretending ignorance has endued all men with some idea of his Godhead, the memory of which he constantly renews and occasionally enlarges. That all to a man, being aware that there is a God and that he is their maker, watch this, may be condemned by their own conscience when they neither worship him nor consecrate their lives to his service. Certainly, if there is any quarter where it may be supposed God is unknown, the most likely for such an instance to exist is among the dullest tribes farthest removed from civilization. But as a heathen tells us, there is no nation so barbarous, no race so brutish, as to not be imbued with the conviction that there is a God. Even those who, in other respects, seem to differ least from the lower animals constantly retain some sense of religion. So thoroughly has this common conviction possessed the mind, so firmly is it stamped on the breast of all men, since then there never has been, from the very first, any quarter of the globe, any city, any household, even any without religion, This amounts to a tacit confession that a sense of deity is inscribed on every heart. And then he continues, all men of sound judgment will therefore hold that a sense of deity is indelibly engraven on the human heart and that this belief is naturally engendered to all, thoroughly fixed as it were in our very bones, is strikingly attested by the contumacy of the wicked. Who? 
though they struggle furiously, are unable to extricate themselves from the fear of God. Calvin says it so well. I couldn't say it any better. Note backwards a bit there, that phrase. There is no nation so barbarous, no race so brutish, as not to be imbued with the conviction that there is a God. Consider for a moment some of the most barbaric cultures of our day. I can pick one real quick. Taliban, major headlines, an incredibly murderous regime. Yet, they have a religious system, don't they? Not a correct one by any stretch of the imagination, but they have a religious system. All of these civilizations will have some kind of a religious system. God has embedded his nature, if you will, in the human heart. They know he exists. They know in some way they've got to relate to him. But their revelation is with error. We are unique and we have special revelation, which I'll get to momentarily. So when we realize Calvin wrote this in the 1500s, this idea, this doctrine of general revelation, back then, it was pretty much a given in general society. But by the 20 to 21st century, no longer a given. Today, it's controversial and more often than not denied. By the 20th century, we now exist in the 21st, but in the 20th century, we saw the biggest assault on this doctrine, what we would consider a liberal-type uh, construct that went against this idea of a general revelation. As an overreaction to a structured theological system, what's a structured theological system? If you attend a church that's covenantal theology, that's a structured theological system. If you attend a church, that's a dispensational theological system. That's a structured theological system. There's variants of that through Presbyterianism, Methodist. Uh, your fundamental Bible churches have a system, maybe not quite so structured. But though mainline main denominations were very structured, as an overreaction to that, you began this liberal bend. And back in the 1800s came the Enlightenment movement over in Europe. You wonder what happened to our main seminaries, Harvard, Yale, Dartmouth, William and Mary, you name it, what happened? As those people came to the shores of America, formed those seminaries, graduated seminary graduates to now go out and plant churches, those that wanted to move to higher education, i.e. PhD level in theological studies, we had no PhD programs. What did we do? We shipped those people back to Europe, to Germany, and they sat under those PhD instructors of the Enlightenment movement, blew them up, they came back, destroyed our seminaries. That's the long and short of what happened. It was this enlightenment movement of which one of the fathers of that group, Schleiermacher, came to the idea that as an overreaction to these structured theological systems, we need a religion of feeling. Feeling, emotion. You take a leap of faith into this idea of God. God will reveal himself in some manner simply as I look at the text. So this 
idea of we have a logical, rational theology. This was a pushback against that. And so with this enlightenment, and he's trying to reconcile it with a traditional Protestant Christianity, this blending comes to another form of philosophy, if you will, or theological thought called deism. Many of our founding fathers were deists. Not all. George Washington was not. Benjamin Franklin was. What is deism? Deism is the belief in the existence of a supreme being. Yep, there's a God. Specifically, though, of a creator, watch this, who does not intervene in the universe. No providence. One could say God created the world, set it into motion, step back, hands off, and he watches us spin. Will not intervene into the affairs of man. That's the idea of deism. Additionally, it rejects revelation as a source of divine knowledge and asserts that empirical reason, observation, and the natural world are exclusively logical and reliable. That's a problem. Reliability is a problem. We are a fallen creature. We're in a fallen world. Things don't work the way they did in Genesis 1 and 2. 3 became a problem. Nothing runs and works the same since Genesis 3. What does Calvin say regarding this philosophy? Well, in your handout, Calvin on deism, he says, those, therefore, who in considering this question propose to inquire what the essence of God is, only delude us with frigid speculations, it being much more our interest to know what kind of being God is and what things are agreeable to his nature. For of what use is it to join epicures in acknowledging some God who has cast off the care of the world and only delights himself in ease? This is the key. What avails it, in short, to know a God with whom we have nothing to do? And he has nothing to do with us. That's the idea of deism, which is the result of the Enlightenment, which is the result of what transpired in Europe, which is the result of what blew up all of our mainline seminaries today. And as a result, this has infected much of Christianity today, and we end up with an emotionally charged basis of our faith versus a logical, rational theology, as we would call it. But as wonderful as the created order is, as wonderful as the glory is of the heavens and creation, general knowledge is insufficient to bring us to redemptive knowledge. We can look at the sun, moon, stars, creatures, the grandeur of heaven, but something must happen. General revelation must be complemented by special revelation. That complement is God the Holy Spirit working in us, through us, to regenerate our heart, our mind, and bring us to re repentance and redemption. It's a combination of general aided with special that brings this about. General revelation can bring us to an understanding and even a level of knowledge of God. Is that possible? No. We can know that there's a divine being. We can know that God exists. It cannot bring us to repentance and redemption. Why is that? In Romans 1, as we looked at, Paul makes it very clear. He says, by our unrighteousness, unrighteousness we do what? We suppress 
the truth of God. We become futile in our thinking, our foolish hearts were darkened, and we became fools. So man, when he processes that knowledge, that general revelation that comes to us generally, we do what? We distort it. We exchange it. We worship the creation and that order. And the worst, as Paul says, is we take that and we suppress that knowledge. Paul lays it out there again in Romans 1 and moving on to 3. He's, he's built this, this structure, this foundation in Romans 1 in order to move us over to Romans 3. In Romans 3, he says, look, no one is righteous. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So realize that general revelation is actually the basis for guilt in man. If you run a red light and you get a ticket, you say, but wait a minute, Mr. Ossifer, sir, but, but I was wearing a blindfold. You're doubly guilty. Guilty of the offense, doubled down because of what you did to willingly suppress the truth, right? That's the problem we've got with mankind. And so this general revelation becomes the basis of guilt in mankind. General revelation will give us an understanding of the existence and some attributes of God, but to the degree it's revealed, we are without excuse. And that's why Romans 1 is the basis for all go to hell, but by the grace of God. Okay? Because we are condemned, because we have a knowledge of God, simply by looking and observing. But general revelation, again, not adequate to fully discern the world, to come to an understanding of that, that we and the world, that what we inhabit is fundamentally messed up. Mankind suppresses this. Why do we do that? Because we want to avoid the holiness of God. To really deal with the holiness of God is a very confrontational thing. It's, it brings condemnation. It brings guilt. When you confront that holiness of God as an unrepentant, unregenerate believer, it's incredibly condemning. Mankind does not want to deal with that. So that person will reject, let me put it this way, the person that rejects general revelation is really less damned than the person that has rejected special knowledge. Because with special knowledge, special revelation comes Jesus. I'm going to detail special in a moment here. Paul says, look, there are none righteous, no, not one. No one can claim ignorance on the basis of not knowing or hearing of Christ. You can claim that ignorance. But no one can ever be ignorant of general knowledge. General knowledge of God is not, it's inexcusable. But when you combine general knowledge and then you're exposed to special knowledge and you've rejected both, you're doubly condemned. And the defect is in us. Truth has been revealed and we suppress the truth of the existence of God. 
Paul makes that clear in Romans 1. Pagan religions, when you look at a pagan religion, all of those religions are the result of general revelation that has led to idolatry. As a committed, a committed practitioner of Islam, Mormonism, Buddhism, Jehovah Witness, J-Dubs, Unitarianism. I was having a great conversation this morning with a young lady. Catholicism, a committed practitioner of any of these are doubly guilty. Why? They are more devoted and more sincere to their idolatry. Thus doubly guilty. God has not called us to religion. God has called us to relationship and obedience. These groups practice religion. They see the general knowledge, the general revelation, Yep, there's a God, and they've constructed their own way of what they think they can do to earn their way back to God. Without special revelation, you're never going to get back to God. When you get special revelation, it's either accept or reject. Those are your two options. Sadly, today we're in this culture where we see Christianity is just one of a lot of options. And in many quarters, it's now becoming completely opposed to what we do and believe. So it's not just optional, it's these options are fine, that one, we're going to actually persecute it and suppress it. That's where we're going. As my lead pastor would say, we're under a soft persecution today, and I think it's going to go from hard, from soft to harder to harder to harder. We're going to find ourselves at a point where we're going to have to count the cost of faith in Christ. Paul says their foolish minds are darkened. The darkness is a result of their actions, suppressing the truth. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have questions about P4C, visit our website at p4csummit.org. Or you can email us at info at p4csummit.org. We hope you can join us next week on the P4C podcast as we listen to part two of this message. May God bless you as you seek to passionately live for his glory each and every day.